Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we implant in your brain weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Scopus Award winner Melanie Zeppel talks about how climate change affects the health of humans and forests. But first up, news about brain reading and sonification. Elderberries. I was all set to give you a great story on the flu-busting properties of elderberries when I finally found out that Sydney University had retracted their research paper with an apology and an admission that their research looked at the effects of elderberries in human cells in a culture, not on the effects of elderberries on the symptoms of flu being experienced by humans, as they claimed. Even worse, they apologised for not declaring a major conflict of interest. Their funding came from a company that sells elderberry extracts as a natural therapy. At this time, there are no studies showing that elderberries help you recover from the flu more quickly. There is a study on people on a plane keeping journals that suggests they recovered from colds more quickly when they used elderberry supplements, but it's not strong evidence. Brain reading. Researchers from the University of California, San Francisco have trained recurrent neural network software to translate some brain signals into some sentences. The four women in the experiment already had around 250 electrodes implanted in their brains in order to monitor epileptic seizures. This is just another case of taking advantage of electrodes that were already there. In the experiment, the women were asked to read out loud from a set of 30 to 50 sentences as the team measured brain activity from the electrodes. The largest group of sentences contained 250 unique words. Neural network software was trained to identify regularly recurring Neural network software was trained to identify regularly occurring patterns that could be linked to repeated aspects of speech such as vowels or consonants. These abstract patterns were then input to a second neural network, which tried to decode them into words to form a sentence. The women repeated their readings to train the system, and then the final time, and then read the sentences a final time to test the system's ability to translate their signals into sentences. Brain activity is slightly different every time someone reads a sentence, and different between people. So the software had to learn what's similar about the signals so that they could generalise. The software's best result was an error rate of only 3%. The small number of words in the study made it easier for the software to predict which words usually follow others. 
This is important because when the researchers tried to get the software to translate individual words instead of complete sentences, the failure rate went up to 38%. While 250 words is tiny compared to the 350,000 that most people use, it may be a good start for people who have no speech at all. The real issue is whether the software trained on the brains of four women has generalised its rules enough to be able to translate sentences with those words from other people. A lot more work needs to be done before we have a system that can read the intended words of people who've lost the ability to speak. The paper was titled Machine Translation of Cortical Activity to Text with an Encoder-Decoder Framework and was published in the journal Nature Neuroscience. Furry face reading. Researchers at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies in La Jolla, California, use machine learning to read the facial expressions of mice. They were able to read expressions of joy, fear, pain, and other basic emotions. The basic plan was to elicit emotions and then record their little faces, until software could tell what the mice were feeling. High-speed video cameras captured subtle movements in the mice's ears, nose, whiskers and other parts of their face. They used sugar water to evoke pleasure, a shock in the tail to trigger pain, bitter quinine water creating disgust, an injection of lithium chloride evoked a nauseated malaise. And finally, a place where shocks previously had been delivered sparked fear. The software learned that on the face of a mouse drinking sweet water, and presumably happy about it, the ears move forward and fold at the back towards the body, and the nose moves down towards the mouth. A mouse tasting bitter quinine sends its ears straight back, and the nose curls slightly backward too. In this way, they can build up a catalogue of expressions. It's previously been found that nerve cells in the insular cortex of the brain change when different emotions are felt, in mice and humans. First, the researchers observed these signals while they elicited the emotions with sugar water and so on, for the camera and machine learning. They could identify nerve cell activity that corresponded with the facial expressions, which could allow them to correlate the nerve activity with the emotions of the mouse. They then turned things around by stimulating these nerve cells to produce the same signals they'd shown when the mouse was feeling an emotion. By prodding these cells to fire signals, the researchers could make the mouse show facial expressions that match the emotions associated with the nerve signals. We don't know if the mice were simply manipulated into expressing pleasure, fear or disgust, or whether they were also manipulated into actually feeling the emotions. As usual, the researchers hoped to gain insight into humans through their mouse experiments. The paper was titled Facial Expressions of Emotional States and the Neuronal Correlates in Mice and was published in the journal Science. Viral Music Researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology have converted into music the shape of the spike protein of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus that causes COVID-19. The sound you're hearing 
is a sonified virus protein. Their aim is to be able to intuitively find patterns that correspond to parts of the virus spike protein that may be attacked by future medication. The spike protein is the tool that SARS-CoV-2 uses to infect cells. The researchers assigned each amino acid making up the virus's spike protein a unique note in a musical scale. Converting the entire protein into a preliminary musical score that goes for nearly two hours. In the virus protein, the component amino acids tend to curl up into a helix or stretch out into a sheet. Researchers capture these features by changing the duration and volume of the notes. Molecular vibrations due to heat also get their own sounds. This new musical format can help scientists find sites on the protein where antibodies or drugs might be able to bind simply by searching for specific musical sequences that correspond to these sites. You could turn the whole site on the protein into a musical sound and then track the protein's score listening for that sound. This, the researchers say, is faster and more intuitive than conventional methods used to study proteins, such as molecular modelling. They add that by comparing the musical sequence of the spike protein to a large database of other sonified proteins, it might be possible to one day find one that can stick to the spike. Preventing the virus from infecting cells. The instruments, of course, were entirely the choice of the researchers. They chose the Japanese Koto. Their paper was titled A Self-Consistent Sonification Method to Translate Amino Acid Sequences into Musical Compositions and Applications in Protein Design Using Artificial Intelligence and was published in the Nano Journal of the American Chemical Society. They published the music on SoundCloud with the title Viral Counterpoint of the Coronavirus Spike Protein 2019 NCOV by Marcus J. Bueller from MIT, who wrote, As you listen to the protein, you will find that the intricate design results in incredibly interesting and actually pleasing, relaxing sounds. This doesn't really convey the deadly impacts of this particular protein is having on the world. This aspect of the music shows the deceiving nature of the virus, how it hijacks our body to replicate and hurt us along the way. So, the music is a metaphor for this nature of the virus to deceive the host and exploit it for its own multiplication. I'll post the link to their SoundCloud for the full musical score in the show notes.
you're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Melanie Zeppel is a data scientist and researcher at Gen Impact, the Centre for Economic Impacts of Genomic Medicine at Macquarie University. Melanie won a Scopus Excellence in Research Impacting a Sustainable Future Award for her transdisciplinary body of research looking at the impact of drought, heat waves, and climate change on forest health and human health. Melanie has four projects on the go, including looking at the impacts of heat waves and drought on human health and the costs of climate change on human health. I began by congratulating Melanie and asked her. What are the impacts of drought, heat waves and climate change on human health and forest health? That's a great question. So the impacts of drought and heat waves on forest health in Australia, Australian vegetation is particularly resilient because it's adapted to low rainfall and low nutrients. So eucalypts, for example, are adapted to recover from fire and drought, although if they happen rapidly in quick succession, then forest mortality may result. We're having unprecedented droughts and rising temperatures and fires. So whereas forests would previously have been able to recover, it's in question as to whether they're going to recover now. So there's mortality resulting in forests from heat waves and drought and in humans as well. When I was actually researching the impacts of drought on forest mortality, I came across these studies that were showing that there's during drought, during and after severe drought, there's a lot of human mortality and suicide rates, particularly in rural areas. So the impacts of heat waves on human health include things like increased cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease follows from bushfire smoke and air pollution. And heat waves also lead to increases in preterm births and kidney disease also increases. And I suppose there's a big mental health cost as well. Yes, so there's a big mental health cost, uh, particularly following drought and particularly in rural areas, although studies show that that differs by age group and gender. And in cities, there's also mental health costs following hate waves as well. And where we have a project looking at the increase in violent crimes during hate waves and with increased temperatures and also mental health and psychiatric admissions also increase in heat waves as well. We don't seem very well prepared. We don't have public spaces for people to escape to when it's just too hot, when most people don't have air conditioning. Yeah, so that's a great point. And there are particular communities that will probably be okay. And then there's other communities that are more vulnerable. So people who are working and able to go to air conditioning or people who are high to middle socioeconomic groups, they can go to malls and uh, they can go to watch the movies, for example. Whereas elderly people who don't have air conditioning or rural people who have a long way to travel to somewhere with air conditioning, they're particularly at risk. Also elderly people with other conditions as well, for example people with cardiovascular disease and elderly and living in rural communities, the risks are compounded. So a lot of communities will do much poorly than others and our research is hoping to look at how we can best support those communities. I think that's the question as summer comes on that everyone's thinking about is what do we do? Because even in a mall, you're only there as long as you can keep paying. 
that's true. So ideally there would be other things like urban design, for example, planting trees and having cooler spaces, so parks and things like that. So some cities are getting on board with that. Other things that we're looking at are partnering with things like the Heart Foundation or the Stroke Foundation and saying, okay, we know that particular people are going to be at risk at heat waves and we can predict that there's going to be a heat wave coming up in this particular week so we're going to give early warning systems so you know if you're going to go to the movies once a month this would be the time to do it or even things like if air conditioning is unaffordable often just having a fan is an issue and also what we'd love to do eventually is partner with aged care facilities for example and say you know what you could get renewable you could get solar panels you could have air conditioning that's affordable and then this could take care of your population And you mentioned earlier forest mortality. Do you mean death of a whole forest? Yeah. So in regions in Europe and North America, often whole forests will die. And also there are, you know, individual trees within a stand that will die as well. So some colleagues in New Mexico have seen vast swathes, massive forests where entire landscapes have died. And this is compounded by insects and pest attacks and also fires. In Australia, there have more recently been less instances of mortality, but we've been unsure if that's because people aren't actually observing it or because the eucalypts recover so quickly. They've got re-sprouting species where the leaves re-sprout from the top of the canopy or the stems and trunks, whereas a lot of the North American species, they haven't evolved with these low nutrient, low rainfall forests. So they don't recover and even actually so areas in Tasmania and some of the rainforests that are burning in Queensland it's unlikely that those will recover. Because that's a big difference isn't it eucalypts and those sort of trees evolved with fire whereas the rainforests really no. Yeah so this is an example of why what's happening at the moment is unprecedented and you know, strategies that we have to adapt and prepare and mitigate and reduce global, reduce Australia's emissions would be key. We've got really good action at state governments, at local governments on reducing emissions. We've got really some excellent action from individuals and businesses like Mike Cannon-Brooks on leading the way, for example, in South Australia on how to reduce emissions and these are the things that we need to do to halt what's happening or slow, actually slow down the progression of what's happening. And what should the government be doing if they listened? If the federal government listened, they would say, right, we recognise that Australia could be a global leader in renewable energy. We have amazing sun, we have land, we could lead the way in engineering and education and photovoltaic, energy storage, energy transmission. I think a key next step would be transmission of power because if you look at the starting of fires in California, if they were if they had updated and if they had outstanding brand new energy transmission then there's one less ignition and also in Australia we've got lots and lots of renewable energy facilities set up except Australia is so vast that we need solid transmission between all these regions so I would say if the Australian government's listening they would look at jobs in renewables and energy storage and energy transmission 
and the, the, if the government's listening, they would say, we see that there are jobs in renewables and we see that this is going to meet our Paris Agreement. I think it's worth noting that there are some outstanding individuals and state governments and local governments and businesses that are doing amazing things for reducing emissions and preparing for heat waves and droughts and these are the exemplars and we should reward and celebrate the people who are actually taking action on climate change. Also, I think if people follow the Climate Council, you'll just get some amazing information, particularly when you're, you know, Christmas backyard, how to talk to your family. And one of the most effective vehicles or strategies I've seen for reducing or addressing climate action in Australia is market forces. They just have this amazing ability where you just sign up to their emails and then you you know you pull this click down menu is your superannuation or is your bank in this and then I imagine 70 or 100 people send an email and the power that they have had to get massive financial institutions to pull out of insuring particular coal is just outstanding it's remarkable and I've not seen anything in the climate space as powerful as market forces. Is that why the government wants to ban it? I think you're right. I think that's why Scott Morrison had some words to say about market forces because they are so powerful. So in conclusion, I think it's really important to remember that there are so many jobs that will be available in renewable energies and if Australia pushes forward and looks at, for example, solar, wind, we could be a global leader and I understand that there's a lot of concern about jobs and coal, but Australia has the potential to be a leader in the knowledge and the technology and the engineering. And there are so many jobs that are going to be potentially available in renewables and even lithium mining, that it's absolutely worth letting go of past jobs and looking for the emerging jobs in renewables because this is the way of the future and I hope Australia will be a global leader in renewable energy. Well, Melanie, thank you very much. You're welcome. That was Scopus Award winner Melanie Zeppel from the Gen Impact Centre for Economic Impacts of Genomic Medicine at Macquarie University, talking about the impact of heat waves, drought and climate change on forest health and human health. Mr. Speaker, this is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. The treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. Mr. Speaker, those opposite have an ideological, pathological fear of coal. There's no word for coalophobia officially, Mr. Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite. But it's that malady, Mr. Speaker, that is afflicting the jobs in the towns and the industries and indeed in this country because of their pathological, ideological opposition to coal being an important part of our sustainable and more certain energy future. And if you search out coalophobia in the dictionary or indeed online, you'll find it's a fear of clowns. Oh, what does such and such think about this? And, and I've just learned not to care. Um, and I really don't that much. <laughs> and that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? 
Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambaka Valley, 3MVR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. Support Diffusion by buying through the affiliate links at diffusionradio.com slash support. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man, knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits, photography, collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.